Today's election-winning episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in campaigning and community organising. Dunn Street works with non-profit and community-based organisations, trade unions, progressive businesses and social democratic parties across the globe to develop community engagement and organising strategies that win campaigns both big and small. Uh, Dunn Street trains engagement staff, volunteers and organisers in leadership and power building and they help leaders craft their own public narrative that tells a story that unites people to move uh, them to act together. To find out how you can create change in your community in 2023, then follow Dunstreet uh, at dunstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Would you like to make a genuine difference in clients' lives? Morris Blackburn is looking for lawyers from graduate to three years post-admissions experience to join their nationally recognised class actions team in Sydney, New South Wales, the home of the MINS Labor government. Uh, Their class actions team is the largest and most experienced in Australia and they're responsible for some of the largest settlements in Australian history. And if you are driven to make a difference and are passionate about litigation and the law, then Morris Blackburn would love to hear from you. Simply go to uh, morrisblackburn.com.au to find out more. really should have turned off my uh, email before... I did this uh, this read. Uh, and finally, today's episode is brought to you by Swift Fox. Every moment of your campaign matters. Uh, you need the tools that you can trust, the lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations and events that will energise the community both online and offline and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. Swift Fox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, simply go to w www.swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Hello and welcome to our special episode of Socially Democratic, my favourite ones after we win an election campaign, where we are going to break down uh, the the result from the weekend in New South Wales. I'm going to be joined by uh, Rosie Ryan from the CPSU to help me unpack what was a fantastic night in uh, across the great state of New South Wales with the election of the uh, new uh, Chris Minns Labor government. Um, if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher uh, and be sure to leave us uh, five stars on Apple Podcasts when you're done listening to the show or give us a review. And for all the updates, follow Dunn Street on uh, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on a Thursday on the lands of the Wurundjeri people uh, and joining me on the line from the People's Republic of New South Wales, the home of the new men's Labor government, is Rosie Ryan from the CPSC. Rosie, welcome back to our final episode and what a joyous episode it is. Thank you, Stephen. And it uh, still feels quite odd and nice to hear New South Wales described that way. Not how it has been for a long time. It has been a while between between drinks. I was thinking about this 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 morning as I was um, uh, walking back from from a meeting. These are truly the golden years of Labor Party electoral dominance. When you think about that, I mean, obviously, I know it's been reported on, but let's just remind ourselves that Labor is now in power in every single mainland state and territory and federal government uh, across the country. Obviously, Tasmania is the only one holding out. Uh, I think I read somewhere over the weekend over 60% of lower house seats in our parliaments across the country are held by Labor 
members of parliament. That's an incredible statistic. Yeah, it's incredible. The tide's really turned. And I would, I mean, I'm not sure um, how old your good self is, but certainly I know in 2007 uh, when I was a a youngish union organiser and we won uh, at a national level when uh, in, in the Kevin Rudd election in 2007, we were then in government in every state and territory. And that had never been achieved before. That was the first time in history that had ever happened. But within the next five years, uh, things really changed. We lost the Carpenter WA government um, uh, a year later. In 2010, we lost the Uh, Victorian state government. In 2011, we lost the New South Wales state Labor government. In 2012, we lost the Queensland state Labor government. So within five years, WA, Victoria, Western Australia and New South Wales all flipped to conservative. This time around, in 2023, I don't feel like that's going to happen. You know, we don't have elections for a while anyway, but I can't see us losing in Western Australia I can't see us losing in South Australia. That's a brand new government. I can't see us losing in obviously New South Wales. I can't see us losing federally. I know things can change, right? You get cocky. Don't jinx it. I know, I know, I know. But John, I agree. Right now with this very positive outlook, it looks good. And also the Liberal parties don't look like strong contenders or real competition in any of those places. So, um, you know, things could change, but it's looking pretty positive. And I think, you know, we as Labor people tend to, you know, when things aren't going well, we're very good at being very critical of ourselves. But I think when things are going well, it's good to stop and actually go, well, hang on a minute, this is pretty good, right? Broadly speaking, from your perspective, what do you think at a, at a, as a national organisation, as a national political movement, what do you think that with we are doing well? I mean, I know we'll dive into what's going on in New South Wales in a moment, but just as a general sense, what do you, what do you think is going, why is Labor... Uh, so dominant right now in politics? Yeah, I think I think it, there's a bit of a domino effect with it as well, like seeing competent Labor governments doing good things for the community, not scary, not too out there, just actually delivering on the services people need, leading effectively, having good leaders in there um, does really help. And certainly federally Labor coming into power you have felt just much more of a pro-Labor vibe, whether it be in family or social circles um, or at work, just people are much more positive. There have been points in time where the Labor brand is incredibly tainted, particularly in New South Wales, um, and it has really felt like it's not a dirty thing to say that you're Labor and it's not something that you should be scared of bringing up at a party because people are going to behave uh, very oddly in response. Um, And that kind of positive wave that federally we've had um, shows that, you know, all this Liberal fear-mongering about how terrible Labor is, how radical and how much change will come, um, it's not that scary to elect a Labor government. And that transition from a long-term liberal government into something new doesn't have to be scary either. Um, So I think we're seeing um, a focus on the issues that actually impact people's lives, the services they care about, integrity in politics, all of those type of things. Uh, And we're also just seeing good governing and people wanting their governments to govern and to do things for them, uh, which is obviously a bit counter to the liberal 
ideology um, and playbook of just shrinking everything and cutting everything. So I, I find it really encouraging. Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there, isn't it? I think that particularly with incumbency, once elected, you know, you, you, you we've seen from the Palaszczuk government in Queensland, the Andrews government in Victoria, uh, the McGowan government in WA, it's lovely to say all those things, and, and in, in the embryonic stages certainly of a Malinowskis government in South Australia is that once they do get the levers of power that they use that wisely to deliver and to your point, and sorry, and I should say an Albanese government uh, at a national level. Um, yeah, you're right. Voters just, I don't think voters want governments to create too much craziness or chaos, um, but they do want to see things getting done. They want to see service delivery. State governments very much are set up in our federation to be providers of those services, the critical ones, schools, hospitals, and public transport and that kind of stuff. Um and when they do deliver on it, then they get rewarded. And I guess that's the big challenge, isn't it, for the men's government now is to get in there and actually start to do stuff. Yeah, because they got elected. You know, the key messages were stopping privatisation and how terrible privatisation is, and it's great. You know, New South Wales Labor has not always been at this point on this journey, uh, and they're there now and the community is behind them. Uh, and also on getting pay rises for essential workers and, and public servants, and we saw... You know, we saw in seats where those people live, um, uh, we saw rewards for labour in, in the results and teachers, nurses out there campaigning, talking to people about the issues. Um, so they will have to deliver. And they really clearly committed around those issues. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about some of those seats that uh, Labor won on election night and what a wonderful evening uh, it was. So Labor at this point, and as I've said to you uh, folks out there, we're recording this one at like um, 5.30 on a Thursday evening. So you, if you're listening to this over the weekend, the count would have then obviously continued. But at this moment in time anyway, Labor picked up uh, seven seats, the seats of Camden, East Hills, Monaro, Parramatta, Penrith, Riverston and South Coast. Uh, the Independents picked up the seats of Wakehurst, uh, sorry, Wakehurst and Wallandilly. Uh, and uh, an independent also picked up. Well, the the yeah okay, they have picked up the seat of Kiama. I'm still holding out hope there, but it looks like it is going to go to that independent former Liberal, um, which means that at this moment in time, the current seats have Labor on 45 in the lower house, the uh, the Coalition on 32, the Greens on three, in other uh, on nine, and the seats that are currently in out, uh, if I can just open up my spreadsheet here, is Goulburn, uh, which the, Labor, the Liberal Party are still ahead by 368 votes. Holsworthy, where the Liberal Party candidate is ahead by 526 votes. Ride, where the Labor Party are ahead by 235 votes, and that's 76% of the vote counted. And Terrigal, where the Liberal Party are ahead um, by 230-odd votes with 75% of the vote counted. Before we go to the in-doubts, um, let's, um, here's an opportunity for you, Rosie, to uh, you know really talk up your ability to call seats as you did uh, in our previous podcast. Uh, what, what, what were the seats that out of those seven that we picked up, which ones surprised you or which ones were like, okay, yeah, that, that, that did make sense and what did we learn from those, those results? Look, I think I think our predictions were right in that 
some of those seats where there was a tiny, tiny margin and you'd think they'd be, you know, you know, a big swing to carry them over. We thought they'll get there, but they'll just get over the line. And that includes seats like um, Penrith and um, uh, East Hills as well. So East Hills just got there, 1.6% swing. It's looking like at this point in the count and Penrith 2.3. Um, so we made it, um, but not by the kind of big swings that we saw like, 14% South Coast, um, which people people doubted, uh, but was then one of the first seats to be called on the night. Everyone was in shock. I was very validated. Um, yeah, indeed, absolutely. Yeah, the, the red wave of the South Coast, if only if only we were looking a bit better in Kayama. Um, and then, yeah, I think, you know, Riverston, we thought we'd pick up Parramatta, absolutely, 15 percent swing I think yep. uh with Donna Davis getting up there um and um Monero did um you know 14 percent swing um I think that did really well despite the kind of chaos of chopping and changing of, of candidates in there um bringing back a very popular former local member I think really worked there um and then I know this isn't a seat picked up but Bega, like um, 17% swing to the LP to talk more about the South Coast, like bloody hell. Um, running um, running an obstetrician gynecologist who's delivered everyone's babies in the electorate really works as a candidate, particularly when they're a lovely popular person um, that very much recommends that. Um, so, look, I think, um, I think our predictions broadly played out, but... In some of those seats where we did see big swings, it wasn't quite enough for the kind of swing needed, and that would include, you know, Oatley has has fallen short, was in the count there for a bit, um, and Kayama, where, you know, despite the charges against the Liberal now independent being out there and everything, popular local member has gotten back in. So it will be interesting to see, you know, he might be suspended from Parliament, might not be, but... Um, has definitely gotten back in with, with the community's backing at this point in the count. But I hope you're right. I hope we can hold out hope there, Stephen. The um, the seats needed, Labor's too short of getting to that magical number of 47 to form a majority government. And looking at the four seats in doubt, Goldman, Holsworthy, Ride and Terrigal, Ride we are, as I mentioned before, ahead by, um, by 200-odd uh, votes at the moment. Um one thing that I, I think that uh, that I've started to my, I guess my 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 theory has started to move away from the, tr- the traditional theory. Obviously, was pre the days where a lot of people pre polled, as in literally turned up to the pre poll and voted in person. Uh, you know, the the, the post election night count always tended to favour conservatives because most of those votes were postal votes, and most of those voters are generally speaking older citizens and more likely to be leaning conservative than. Than, uh, than progressive. So therefore, you know, the, the, the orthodoxy was you're going to lose votes in the in the count for early votes. But obviously we now are discovering that most the biggest booth is the pre-poll booth. And certainly from the experiences of uh, Western Australia, South Australia, Victoria and the federal election in recent times is that the, the, the correlation or the similarities between those who early vote sorry, those who pre-poll and those who vote on election day are basically the same. And what we certainly found in Victoria was there was a number of seats that at the end of the count on election night, Labor was slightly behind. 
but or if they were slightly ahead, that they actually picked up votes in the when they were counting the pre-polls and came home strong and won. So I'm looking at these seats of Goldman, Holsworthy, Ride and Terrigal, and I'm just wondering, one, I, I feel like we hold Ride just based on that theory. If the theory is that pre-poll reflects what happens on the day, then we hold Ride. We are behind in, in uh, Holsworthy, which was a seat where Unions New South Wales also put resources into. We're behind by 526 votes. That's a That would be a sizable margin still. 20% of the vote to count, though. Uh, and Goulburn, we're behind by 368. Terrigal, on the other hand, we're actually, it's a closer margin. We're only behind by 200. Are there any of those seats there that do you think that there is a chance that Labor can potentially pick up if we were to also win right, therefore giving 47 seats to the government? Look, I, I mean, I'm still um, not sleeping at night on account of the, the vote being so close in Ryde and, and postal and absentee um, votes still being yet to be counted. So I think you're right, like there were pre-poll booths won there. I think it follows a similar pattern to what we saw in Benelong, which it's in the in the seat of. Um, so there is hope there, but it is too close to make any assumptions about at this point. The others I feel more cynical about but I I hope to be proven wrong like it is hard if we're behind at this point I don't know as much as I have been following with ride where we're at in terms of what votes have been received but that that traditional um you know postal votes um swinging a bit more conservative does still tend to apply let's um I'm interested obviously the independence uh, picked up Wakehurst and Wallandilly, but we didn't, once again, did not see this teal wave that everyone keeps on talking about. So therefore I'm going to make the assumption now that this teal wave was a, that the federal election was an anomaly and we can really start to put it down to some things like the ability to, like we talked about in the show last week or the week before, big funder that can actually centralise bankroll a campaign and two, someone like Scott Morrison that clearly was pissing off wealthy socially progressive types that uh, could coalesce around a particular candidate. What's your read on this this so-called teal movement? Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, I think we've reflected before that similarly to Victoria, a lot, a lot made of it, but doesn't necessarily translate at the state level. Um, this is not a, this is not a wave. Um, look, I know Judy Hannon in Wallandilly had the Climate 200 backing, but the, the spending caps are so low um, in, in state campaigns. They look very, very different to what a federal campaign would look like. Um, and, um, there really is limited, um, there is a limited amount that you, you can really put into it financially. So um, that really loses the edge. And there, yeah, there, there isn't a Scott Morrison, the, the kind of issues, the kind of vibe of the community um, who's kind of changing their votes looks quite different. There were some pretty impressive independent candidates around the place um, and some, you know, women that looked like it, it was a similar kind of, you know, good social media, great digital presence, some cool campaigning, some teams around them, but just on a much smaller scale and not with that that kind of strength of feeling against Scott Morrison that we had federally. And then Wakehurst, I think he was a very popular long-term local mayor. Like I think that's down to um, to another set of circumstances. And certainly from what I saw in the media, the 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 independents got plenty of good earned media. Like they got a they got a great run from from the, the you know the the mainstream media, and it clearly didn't really make much of an impact. Like you would, if you're the Labor Party, you would kill for some of the coverage they were getting. Like it was soft. 
you know, yeah. it was yeah, yeah. Really And the media love the independence. They love the teal wave. Like it's all very popular and very shiny but um, didn't play out electorally and it's interesting, like clearly the media coverage didn't that make that much of a difference for them. And let's turn to a, the the former sweethearts of the uh, Fairfax media, but this where they've moved on to the new shiny thing, as you call them, the Greens. Um, interesting. Uh, what, what, just what, what are your what, what's your take? If you're the Greens campaign director, state campaign director, how do you feel about this election campaign? It's kind of status quo, which is I, I think they had to defend in Balmain, so that's somewhere where they had um, uh, retiring. Greens member for the first time after they'd won it off Labor a number of years ago um, and we're bringing in a, a new candidate, Kobe, um, and it came really close. It came really close, um, but in the end um, Labor didn't make it. The Greens maintained, which shows that it is incredibly hard to win those seats back once they have gone to the Greens, particularly in these kind of inner-city places. Um, and then they've got... Um, Ballina and Newtown and um, where they're, um, you know, particularly Newtown, Jenny Leong is very entrenched, but that's once again three seats. Uh, It's not showing some big landslide for the Greens. It's very much status quo. I know they threw a lot at the south coast um, and they had a really popular local Greens mayor down there um, who's very good, who ran, uh, but they they didn't come anywhere near winning there. So... um, uh, that that experiment didn't work out, but um, I think, yeah, status quo for the Greens. If things change, you know, if Alex Greenwich in the seat of Sydney, uh, who's a very popular independent, um, if he didn't run again, I imagine they would be trying to get in there um, as people kind of move out from the inner city um, into the kind of outer inner west, um, whether there's other seats that they'll really knuckle down and, and go hard in, uh, as demographics change, will be interesting to see over time. It's also funny the three seats you talked about that the Greens that they did retain. They they, they were in a contest uh, in Ballina with the the Nationals, and they had a two point seven percent swing to the Greens on a two party preferred basis, uh, and a just under two percent swing to uh, the Greens in uh, Newtown against the, the Labor Party, but in Balmain, an eight point two percent swing on two party preferred to Labor. Um, and as you said, just falling short behind in the count at the moment by about 1,300 votes. Um, patchy, right? Like what was going on in Belmain, do you think, that um, like an 8.4% swing to Labor on first preferences, uh, only a 2% swing against the Greens actually on their preferences. So I'm just trying to see where where they picked up a lot of those, where they picked up those swings. It's, looking, it's hard to actually – they've just kind of compiled together a whole bunch of votes from other candidates. So I just can't work out where that swing's come from. But anyway, an 8% swing to them on to Labor on our primary. What was going on in Balmain? Do you think that we felt so good about that? Is it incumbency that just was a problem for the Greens and losing um, Jamie Parker? Yeah, I think so. Although, and maybe I just don't see it, but I never thought that it was really Jamie Parker that was the impressive kind of popular local member that people coalesced behind. It was more that it people identified as being Greens um, and they voted Green. Um, so, yes, partly incumbency, but I, I don't think that's the the major factor. Um, I think Philippa Scott, who was the Labor candidate there, was just an absolute workhorse. <laughs> like she 
worked full time um, on this campaign. She threw everything at it. Uh, and I think people started to think, oh, maybe we could get there and kind of came in in support of her. Um, whereas, you know, originally, I think if early on in this campaign, if you'd said to a Labor person, Balmain was in play, a lot would have laughed at you. Um, but on the strength of the local campaign, Philippa's conviction, the local um, the local volunteers working very, very hard, it, it became clear that, you know, we had a real chance there and, and it came very close. So I think um, it shows that Labor's not out of the race in those places and there can be various factors at play. I think generally people like Chris Minns and wanted to see him elected and you got that vibe around the place, around seats like Balmain. Um, so maybe people were voting strategically. Um, but it does show it is very hard to win back. Another, um, I guess, campaign um, orthodoxy has been busted for the third time in a row. If we're talking about sort of this sort of the Greens, or the, sorry, the Teals wave not coming to fruition, this is the third election in a row that Labor has won government or held on to government in the case of Victoria with a primary vote of below 40%. Now, I always grew up when I got involved in politics, people said, Labor's not going to get in the government unless there's a four in front of it, you know, in our primary vote. That's the third time we've achieved that. Labor's primary uh, with the party totals is 37.2% with 3.8% swing to Labor. Uh, the Liberals are on 26% uh, with the Nationals on 8.9%. So 9%. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, I just I, I want to get your thoughts on that. Uh, because I think it's going to take a while for a lot of us to kind of come to terms with it. We can form government, but don't necessarily need to get 40% because there are so many other candidates running in these races. And it's just a matter of kind of <laughs> grabbing all these preferences uh, on the left uh, to, you know, be able to then get these candidates over the line. Your, th your reflections on that? Yeah, I think much like there being everyone pre-polling and election days feeling a bit like a ghost town these days. Um, the the kind of primary vote being lower and lower seems to, to be the norm and, and the direction things are heading in. I think it becomes quite difficult to predict outcomes, particularly in our optional preferential voting system where, you know, you have multiple minor parties of um varied political persuasions, um, people, some people following the how to votes and preferencing, others not, um, lots of people saying just vote one uh, and those type of messages. So it becomes uh, quite chaotic um, and um, quite dependent seat by seat on how many other parties are running and, and um, what kind of votes they're getting and whether those voters are inclined to, to keep preferencing and, and not just kind of have their vote exhaust after they you know, vote one for legalised cannabis or one for the Lib Dems or whatever it may be. Uh, it was actually funny when I went to the um, a booth in Riverston, there was a black and white uh, sandwich board that looked like, v, looked like the New South Wales uh, Electoral Commission, uh, like an information board that said, remember to number every single box. And when I read that, I was like, oh, that's interesting. And at the bottom of it had like a little Labor Party logo and an authorization from Bob Namber. And then maybe sort of a meter away from that, there was another one that was also in that black and white text that said, just vote one and little Liberal Party logo at the bottom. And there was so, I was going to take a photo of actually, just so contrasting. Like if you're a voter walking in there, because it did look very official, right? Um, you'd be, you wouldn't know if you're coming or going. Uh, with the uh, with op op 
with that it's OPV. Confusing. And you can also see then when you're scrutineering a vote at a federal election, how many people are then voting the way that they would in the very fast and loose rules of, of New South Wales, where really they're accepting all sorts of things. Um, uh, and then their, their votes don't qualify. Like, I think it is a real shame for our democracy that we don't have some consist- consistency across the board. Um, let's talk about the things that we think uh, shaped the result now that we've got the results in and looked at um, sort of booth results and, and where we saw swings and where we didn't see swings. And it was a little bit patchy and you, you lifted that up in your earlier remarks. I mean, it is remarkable. Penrith and East Hills, that we only needed literally five people to change their vote and six people did. Like it was, you know, meanwhile you're getting these whopping swings elsewhere like in the South Coast. Um, what are you, um, like I saw, read in some of the coverage on Sunday morning, uh, some key lines coming out from, I guess it would be Sussex Street. You know, the Liberals punted on infrastructure, Labor punted on people. Um, so trying to contrast this issue about how Labor managed to make this issue, this campaign about uh, crazy spending by the, the, the Liberal government and people worry about cost of living. On reflection, how are you feeling about what were the strengths of the Labor message and what were the negatives about the Liberal brand that helped us get over the line here? I think Labor ran a pretty tight, disciplined campaign with pretty clear messaging uh, and the strengths of the messaging. I think that's right that it was about people. It was about um, the services that our community relies on. Um, It is hard to talk in um, an economic frame when there is such kind of um, myths about Labor being terrible economic managers and all the rest, but the way Labor talked about um, cost of living uh, was about talking about privatisation and the impact on privatisation. What has it done to your electricity bills? Um, what would the privatisation of Sydney water do to your water bills? These type of conversations that made it really real for people um, was about their day-to-day budgets, was also about, you know, good values about what public assets should be in public hands, um, and it really connected to people's day-to-day realities. Um, I think um, I think Labor was really you know, had a fresh start, but not a radical change. Um, And they had, you know, a very um, good-looking, young kind of team of people um, looking to to lead the state, um, looking really quite polished and confident and competent. Um, The other side, the Liberals, racked by scandals the whole time. Um, You know, New South Wales Labor has had its fair share of scandals in the past, but this really gave them a run for their money, even in the darkest days. It was really quite incredible. Um, And I feel like so much internal division in the Liberals, they're really um, doing the other side's work for them (laughs) with the kind of the leaks going on and and the infighting. Um, And they were... They're all about, you know, Labor being terrible economic managers, blah, blah, blah. But people are doing it tough and the Liberals have been in power for 12 years. Does that really stick? I think them them being in power for so long and people people hurting in terms of their services, in terms of their pay, um, meant that those, those kind of messages couldn't stick in the same way. Um, combined with the kind of positive force of having Labor in government uh, in so many other places and federally and and that not being such a scary thing. Let's take a quick break to talk about SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust. Lists that are up to date, absolutely. Phone banks, 
uh, that can change minds, emails that drive donations and events that will energize the community online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Okay, let's get back to the show. How much of uh, the conversation around, um, well, sorry, the campaign around the wages cap played into the minds of voters, particularly out in Western Sydney? Mm. I think it was big. Um, And I think that um, we saw um, some great campaigning by the unions, getting out there, talking to people about um, the wages cap, what that actually means as well. So, when you talk wages cap, that's very kind of, um, that by itself doesn't mean much and doesn't mean much to a lot of people. Um, but when you're saying this is what it means, this means that teachers are leaving our schools, it means that we can't attract and retain people in teaching, nursing, paramedics, and that means that we can't get the healthcare or the education for our kids, um, whatever it may be. I think they did a really good job of tying in that narrative. Um, and those problems are so big that, you know, it's the workers feeling them and it's also the parents, everyone who's had to interact with our healthcare system, our education system, these things are known, they're felt, they're lived realities. Um, so I, I think they did a really good job and I think that issue absolutely tied in. Um, and I saw, you know, I don't know where in where you were, Stephen, on election day, but, like, we had tonnes of teachers, overwhelming numbers of teachers in their more than thanks shirts lined up talking to people outside the local school where people were going to vote um, about the party's records uh, and what this election meant, and that was really powerful. It's a brutal form of campaigning, and did you glad that, that when they're on your side, that we, uh, I was in Parramatta, and there was actually one of someone from the AMF was handing out, um, and I actually had a great chat to her about some of the experiences that they're going through right now in hospitals. Um, she's an organizer for the AMF, but obviously has um, was on the tools at one point in time, uh, and a, and a young woman as well. Like not, you know, she's um, um, she's her journey through to doing the work that she's doing now is actually quite interesting. Um, and she's genuinely concerned about the future of health in her state and the role that nurses play and the, the treatment they've got. So enough for her to motivate her to, you know, um, dedicate her Saturday to this campaign, um, which was really interesting. Absolutely. And the healthcare system is terrible, particularly as you go outside cities and into the regions. It's really, really shocking stories. Um, and look, I wouldn't want to be a, a liberal turning up to a polling booth surrounded by teachers and nurses who are furious. Uh, I think that would be quite a scary prospect. And, you know, just to continue with that theme of uh, the unions, of obviously Unions New South Wales played a significant role in this victory. They, you know, invested their resources specifically in ten, sorry, in six seats, won all of them except for Kayama. And I think Kayama is a kind of, a, it, it, as Mark Murray had said on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, it is our smoky. And, geez, they went close. Um, inter- one of my takeaways from that was they resourced those seats early um and i'm talking really really like last year they put those organizers on the ground you know um and i've said this thousands of times on this podcast you know if you invest in a campaign with resources early you you are going to get reward from that as opposed to just rocking up at the last minute and trying to flip a seat so props to the to the union movement for for doing that i feel like now they've got a right to a seat at that table right going forward with the men's government to say okay we helped you get there but now we want to start to see some things in return i want to get your thoughts on that yeah i think that's so critical and you know the unions new south wales um their their members were 
union members were out there talking in their own communities, um, saying essential workers deserve better. Um, we've had, uh, you know, the whole election be dominated by um, messages from Labor about what um, what workers need, being anti-privatisation. Um, so they really do need to flow through. They haven't been in government in a long time, so I know they're they're staffing up and you know putting together their their dream teams. But the union movement needs to be really central. Uh, to, to how they govern um, and delivering for these workers uh, and actually making change there that will be palpable. By the time the next election rolls around, things need to feel very different for those workers. Talk to me about, uh, looked like a, you mentioned before about a, a fresh new team and obviously all of the um, the bunting that was on our polling booth had, you know, the, the whole, fo- the whole, you know, the starting 11 kind of thing, right? Uh, of um, uh, all the caucus leadership um, flanking uh, Chris Minns. And you're right, it was young faces, also a lot of women uh, on that team, which is great to see. Um, mm. Just want to get your thoughts on some of the younger people and some of the, the, the gender balance coming into, into this new parliament from Labor's side. Yeah, look, I mean... The Liberals set the bar very low when it comes to to, to women and um, and women's representation, but um, Labor's done well, and I'm so excited about some of the new faces coming in. Um, they're not they're not all young, but like some of the some of the women coming in, um, lots of good representation from um, former mayors and local councillors. Um, so we see, you know, Karen McEwen in. Um, in Penrith, Donna Davis um, winning with huge swings in Parramatta, um, Liza Butler down on the south coast as well, um, Kylie Wilkinson in East Hills, and I really hope that Lyndall Howison gets there. Um, be fantastic to have um, a local school teacher in Parliament. But these are all women with a lot of years um, between them of community service um, through working in public services, representing on local councils, working in our schools, um, and they will bring a lot of passion and drive um, into there, and, and some of them could be future ministers as well. So I, I'm really excited to see that influx, and I, I think it'll be really good for, for gender balance in there and also the kind of talent we're seeing coming through. Um, can I talk about uh, the... Uh... Who do I want to talk about next? Oh, I don't want to talk about I want to talk about the media. Uh, yeah. City Morning Herald, obviously, over the course of the campaign, really were going about pokies and gaming uh, mm. and trying to make this campaign about that. And Labor really tried not to touch it. Daily Telegraph, particularly in the last couple of weeks, really started to attack uh, Chris Minns and his leadership in terms of no one knows who you are, uh, which I think is somewhat ironic because you're just putting him on the front page of the paper. Therefore, now people know who you are. Uh, neither of these uh, campaigns really landed. And for me, I think this is just another piece of evidence to prove that the media are irrelevant when it comes to shaping the outcome of elections. And I really hope the new government take heed from this and not, when they focus on, when they're crafting their communication strategy, that they're not going to sort of shit themselves about, oh, we need to be on 2GB or we need to be on this particular person to get our key messages out and for it to just lead the way that, that shape the, the narrative the way they want to do. I just want to get your thoughts on the media's performance in this particular campaign. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Stephen. And I think as we were thinking before, you know, the, the kind of media coverage would make you think that there was a tail wave coming when that was absolutely never going to happen. Uh, so they were out of touch. Um, they didn't reflect how the election ended up voting. And it was just a bit messy and embarrassing in terms of the types of issues they tried to, you know, really 
hang on to and and the kind of um, dirty dirty stories at the end being like, oh, we don't know. We don't know who Chris Vins is. You're right. Um, maybe that got him some, some extra platforming. <laughs> People thought, oh, doesn't sound too bad. Um, but it was, it was, you know, pretty, pretty embarrassing on, on their part. I think um, because it didn't reflect the election results, I hope that New South Wales Labor take heed and aren't too reactionary and, and responsive to them. But, um, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, didn't see a lot of great reporting. <laughs> No, not at all. I was, uh, I mean, yeah, the uh, less I say about that, the, the more, the better, I guess. I spend most of the time on this podcast getting stuck into the in, into the media, so maybe I should ease up on it. But I just thought, uh, for the stuff I read. Yeah, I know, the stuff I read, I just thought, this is shit. This is shit. Like, you guys are like, like, I can give them a pass and say that, like, you know, they're understaffed, so, you know, they're trying to cover off a whole bunch of different areas, so they're not going to be experienced when it comes to... Because political campaigning is one thing, like running a government and trying to design policy and and and, and, and implement it is one type of politics, right? But political mm-hmm. campaigning in itself is a different type of politics. And just the way that they were covering it, I just thought, you guys have got no idea what you're talking about. Um, and you're, you're, instead of just reporting the news... You're actually trying to create the news yourself. That's what I saw, particularly with the 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 the, um, the, the gaming the gaming stuff. It was like, oh, we've got an agenda and we're going to run it. And mm-hmm. it just, turns out you were wrong because no one gave a shit. Well, you know, broadly speaking, anyway. Yeah, and it's interesting. It, I don't think you know if if they're going to hitch their wagon to a particular issue that they think is going to be the defining issue of the election, it really fell short of that. It's definitely something that people brought up that I had raised with me by voters um, that was around the traps, but it wasn't, it wasn't resulting in, in changes to votes uh, in a big way, I don't think. And most of the people worried about it, I think, were people that were like, oh, you know, I'm voting this way, but it's a shame about their policy. Yeah. Uh, can we talk about cultural change within the party and the journey that the party, particularly the New South Wales branch, has gone on over the last decade? And think back to 2011. And I remember mm-hmm. speaking to Sam Dastiari at the time who said, and this was before the inevitable election loss that Labor was about to suffer, uh, he said, well, now we're about to find out exactly how loyal our voting base is because if they're still prepared to vote for the Labor Party after all the things that we've done in recent times, then that's what we're going to discover. What is the bedrock of our Labor base? And it turned out to be around about 26 27% primary. The another someone someone else remarked to me on election night going, we've come a long way from where we were in 2011, in which the biggest Labor Party branch was at Long Bay Prison. Obviously, that wasn't the case, but it's a lovely gag to suggest about what was going on in terms of the corruption. Things weren't great for the Labor Party in New South Wales back in 2011, and it's been a long road back for the party. And I sort of thought, and when I was a party official in Victoria and sort of engaging with my colleagues in the New South Wales branch at the time, sort of, you know, there seemed to be like four, five, six years after that, there was a bit of denial. That's what I thought anyway, you know. Still like using hashtag Fortress New South Wales, even though you're getting your ass handed to you election after election. You look like the Nottingham Forest fans in the 1980s. Look, you're big in the 80s, but you're not that good anymore kind of thing. But then something shifted. And I want to get your thoughts on this because I, the, the New South Wales now that I see and the people that I hang out with both professionally and socially, they're younger. There's more diversity there's more, and both, and I mean diversity in so many different ways. 
Mm. Uh, diversity of ideas, opinions, views, far less arrogant, far more grounded, far more open to learning and growing, far more willing to accept a terrible Victorian to come up there and actually help and work on their campaign for the last, you know, seven, eight, nine months, right? That wouldn't have happened 20 years ago, you know? Because yeah, was- New South Wales and Victoria have hated each other very deeply, but I know so many wonderful activists that have, have come up and helped us and vice versa. Yeah, and I, I was, I mean, I was a bit drunk at the time, but in my Uber back from the Brighton Lasands uh, Novotel back to my hotel in the city, I thought to myself, the Labor Party in New South Wales is a, you know, just sort of standing. I know it was election night, real happy, but I was just talking to a whole bunch of people and going, this is a really lovely party. Like, there's yeah. a great people here. There's a lot of energy in this room. People that there's just, it, it, it felt like solidarity, you know, and I was really happy for the election result. Um, and that's that's a long way from 2011. And I just want to get your thoughts about the shift that we saw within the branch over the last couple of years. What's that down to? What can, what are your reflections on that? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's so much to say on this, Stephen. And look, I, the first state election I would have campaigned in, I moved down from Queensland to go to uni and I campaigned in the 2011 one. And you're pretty much bat on for being Labor, like the the level of hostility, you'd have people screaming at you, um, the perception, and it quite founded um, because of of some of the cases that were around was that everyone was horrendously corrupt and disgraceful and didn't deserve to govern. Um, So I feel quite scarred and I know everyone kind of that I know in New South Wales Labor heading into a state election, you're like bracing yourself to go out there into the streets and be hated for wearing a red shirt and it didn't feel that way this time at all. Like that did not come up. Um, there was not that hostility. People weren't having a go at you. It had moved on. There's been enough years that it's moved on. But the the project internally um, in terms of New South Wales Labor has been a really critical one to that. Um, there have been a range of reforms. There's a lot, lot, lot more work to do. Um, but the, the Labarch review that was carried out after the... Kalamanane, Aldi bag full of cash saga um, made a series of recommendations about reform to the the party office and how the party operates Um, and they were really aimed at um, not having it be this kind of um, rotating door of people that were in there just to get themselves a seat in parliament and actually professionalising the show, having merit-based recruitment (laughs) processes and getting people in there on the basis of their skills rather than on the basis of their loyalty or how much, um, you know, the, the hard yards they, they'd done in service to, to a particular person in there. So um, you really see, you know, there's currently people in the digital and fundraising space that come from those backgrounds and have worked on many campaigns or different organisations outside of the movement and have brought that expertise in and that's something we would never seen before and it shows in the quality of the content that they produce. Um, there's lots of good young people on the way up um, and I think there's a much greater commitment to working cross-factionally and working for wins um, and a real commitment to, to cultural change there um, so that we can claw our way back from the wilderness and, and actually win government and, and make a difference. Um, but there were some really bloody years there and a lot, you know, within party office but also within the state caucus, lots of division, the, the Jody Mackay Chris Min's divisions were really hard with those leadership battles, um, but it has all all those hard yards have paid off, um, and I think um, winning government shows it. And um, there's nothing better than having uh, 
having government to govern um, and and real positive change to make, um, I think, for the party's culture and our future. Uh, let's, um, and I, I, I yeah, as I, I can't add it any more than that. That's fantastic and it's just been great. And I think, I think right across the country everyone's so, so pleased with the result uh, that happened on Saturday night. Let's now turn our attention to the Tories and the world of pain that they're about to go through. Uh, Schattenfreude isn't the word, is not a great enough word to describe the joy that I'm going to have watching them right now because they, you know, like nationally they're in, they're in a state of disarray. Mm-hmm. At a state level in most states they're in a state of disarray. I mean, in Victoria they're an absolute basket case right now. I think I remarked on the podcast a couple of weeks ago the Victorian uh, caucus of the Liberal Party literally is like a, a country pub on a Saturday night at one o'clock before it shuts. You know that there's going to be a fire break out any time, anywhere. You know, you need your head on a swivel. This is what's about to happen in the, in the New South Wales branch of the Liberal Party as well. Just give me your, your, your initial reflections. I don't know if you caught any of the Sky News coverage of Chris Kenny just losing his shit as the results came in. I, I need to go back and watch it again. It was absolutely a thing of beauty. This I missed time. it, but I, I'm absolutely going to look that up straight after this. That sounds great. Uh, he and is Laura J. I always forget her name. The other journalist from Sky. They basically had an argument on TV about it was kind of like the moderate wing of the Liberal Party and the Conservative with Liberal Party having an argument about where the Liberal Party goes. Right? Do we stay in the centre? Do we go to the right? And Kenny was like, No, no, we need to go to the right. This clearly this this project of the Liberal Party of playing footies with the centre and you know moving with the Labor Party to the left has been a complete disaster. And I was like, oh, mate, I really hope you are going to get a job as strategy for the Liberal Party, both at a national level or at a state level for the next 10 years, because this is exactly where I want you. Please go to the hard right, because that is not where you win elections in this country. No, it's not. Uh, And I, I think, yeah, I think they're so deluded. And the Liberal Party in New South Wales, the kind of relatively talented popular moderates, um, a lot of them retired or left uh, and were out, see ya, I'm out of here. Um, and um, there's not many There's not many left and they wouldn't have the support internally because there's just so many hard right ideologues whose view of the world is just totally clouded by their own beliefs um, who absolutely think that the party's gone too far to the left and that's why they've been punished, which is not the reality at all. Um, and, you know, we're, we're seeing a similar thing with the Liberals federally. Like the, the messages they will take from this election are totally different from the messages that others will take. Um, and I think they'll dig themselves into this far-right party of opposition that is not in a position to govern and won't be for a very long time. Increasingly irrelevant. And a world um, of internal pain, not to sound too oh. happy about it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Like um, the, uh, the, I mean, certainly what we've seen both at a national level and, a, and a, at a state level in the other states, it has been problematic. Some of them have been able to kind of keep it under wraps, but you know, if, if you're talking to you know people in, on Spring Street or wherever, you know, on North Terrace in Adelaide, you're hearing snippets of the fact that yeah, they're kind of keeping the show together, but things aren't going very well. And the longer you're in opposition, then it, these problems start to really manifest. Um, it will be interesting to see who they select as their next leader mm. uh, and what kind of direction that they take the party. Even selecting someone from the progressive, the moderate side of the the wets of the Liberal Party doesn't necessarily fix the problem. We saw this in Victoria. They've selected someone, um, who uh, John Pasuto, who's seen as a moderate, but he's having problems trying to keep everyone in the tent. Well, look at Malcolm Turnbull. 
if yeah, you don't exactly. have to from your party, then you're, you're not oh, going to I know. It. And they get such a free run from the media because the media is so desperate. You know, the City Morning Herald types, the Age types, the Guardian types, they're so desperate for, you know, a moderate liberal to be the leader and they just give them such a free run. They literally write love letters to them in the paper every weekend and they continue to stuff it up because their own corpus can't keep this shit together. You know, it's just great. Couldn't I'm just happen about- to a nicer bunch. Uh? Couldn't happen to a nicer bunch. I know. I know. One other thing I want to think, th- uh, Dominic Perrottet, I find Dominic Perrottet interesting. And I find him interesting because I think he's smarter than people making him out to be. I don't, I'm not suggesting people said he was stupid. I, I don't – sorry, I'll rephrase that. I think that he actually was what I would call the model consensus centre-right Christian Democrat leader that you tend to see in Europe that kills social democratic parties. And I think that he was the right man for the Liberal Party but at the wrong time. He came in at the end of – I mean, I think – I don't really think anyone could have – probably delivered in, I mean it's easy to say in hindsight now we're definitely Monday quarterbacking here but I couldn't see anyone from their party that probably could have got them over the line they had been in there a long long time to your remarks earlier they were riddled with you know corruption and um, ministerial misconduct and all that kind of stuff and eventually that it just sort of initially that's sort of in the beltway stuff but if it piles up voters kind of get a sort of whiff of it and go you know what could do with the change as long as the other group's credible I'm going to switch my vote. And we saw that on Saturday. I don't think anyone sort of fixes that. But Perrottet, if Perrottet comes in earlier in the piece, I think he actually is the kind of person that would give us problems. I just want to get your thoughts on that. Yes, I I would agree with your read on this. I, I, do, I think the Liberal Party's problem was not Perrottet. It was the Liberal Party. Um, I also think he came in, you know, they'd been in power a long time. Things were not going particularly well. He is an absolute chameleon. He His kind of personal views um, and the, the places he's come from are, are quite extremely right-wing, but um, he was able to really seamlessly shift into a more moderate persona um, and do what was more electorally popular, I think, particularly in, in the social sort of space. Um and he's incredibly intelligent. Um, so I, I do think that he is probably underestimated. It was probably the the wrong time for him. Um, but he wasn't popular in the way that his predecessor was, Gladys Berejiklian. Like, she had huge personal popularity. I think he was smart and he was making really smart decisions and he was inoffensive. I don't think people hated him, but I don't think they loved him either. No, and it probably took a while. He probably didn't have enough time really to do that, I guess. I mean, it, he was – how long was he leader for in the end? When did he replace um, Barry Jiggly? Oh. Um, testing your memory there, aren't I? Yeah, I know. And, and since the pandemic, my, my sense of time is just utterly, utterly out of whack. Um, but he came in kind of towards the tail end of the pandemic Um so late 2021 would be because that's sort of you guys went into your bigger lockdown in sort of June 2021 and came out of it around September, October 2021 from memory. Um, yes. Yes, that's right. So um, he would have been leader from October 2021. There you go. There you yeah. go. So not a long time at all, really. But he was also, he was smart. He was well-spoken. He was clever. But um, also a bit of an awkward praying mantis, not particularly relatable with his seven children. Like I don't think people 
warm to him. I think he he made the most of the position and and changed himself in the ways he needed to. But um, I think Chris Minns has a lot more potential as a, as a relatable, popular leader. Yeah, and good foundations to build on as well. One other thing, that actually, this is more for I guess the Victorians in the uh, in the room listening. Uh, but a po- this wasn't a point that um, I thought of. It was actually someone else made it to me um, and shout out to uh, the X-Man that came up with this. Um, during the uh, during the COVID lockdown, New South Wales was held up as the, and I quote, the gold standard of government response to the lockdown, whereas the narrative in Victoria was that the uh, Daniel Andrews government had completely stuffed it up. And since we've left this COVID period, we've had two elections in which Daniel Andrews was returned with an increased majority and the Liberal Party that ran this gold standard response to COVID got turfed out. And I would just want to put it on the record on this podcast to those Conservatives in New South Wales and in Victoria that were talking up the New South Wales Liberal government's response and talking down the Labor Party's response, who's in government now and who's not in government now. That's all. I just want to put that on the record. And what shirt are you wearing, Stephen? I know it looks awfully like a liberal shirt. I'm glad you brought that up, actually. For the people watching on YouTube, uh, yes, I will stand up so you can see it. It, it has, says lost. It says lost. It has the Liberal Party L logo with the, the letters OST after. I made this shirt after the 2018 Victorian state election uh, and I wore it relentlessly. Uh, for the next couple of days. And I actually wore this when uh, Elbow won on uh, election night when we did our election night coverage with uh, David Fanny, Van Batten and Ben Davidson as well. So this comes out re- quite regularly these days, which is actually a good thing for the Labor Party. Um, we're almost at our hour. Uh, final reflections from you, Rosie, about um, uh, the election or thoughts about what uh, the focus for the government needs to be in the coming months. What, what are we, we're in, we're in, this is the end of March. My God, it's April in two days' time. Um, what are your final reflections? Oh, look, I think um, I think that final reflections are that we should be very smug winners <laughs> for a time because, as you say, um, we're not very good at celebrating our wins and, and this was a great win. Um, the kind of um, what felt like a bit of a landslide on election night is tightening. It will be a, a more difficult and interesting parliament than we thought it would be. Um, but I think with the with the kind of crossbench that there is, like it's it's very workable. Um, I think Labor's going to need to, as as we've seen with with in other places where there's been a really long term coalition government, and then Labor's come in, they're going to need to bring their best people back in, their experienced people. They're going to need to put their teams together, and they're going to need to deliver on their election commitments. Um, and people are going to need to feel that their their services, their, their healthcare system, their education system, um, their pay rises, all of this, um, there's going to need to be a difference. Um, and um, it was a it was a pretty small target strategy, but those um, the the targets that that, that they set were um, were pretty big ones. Uh, they really need to turn the state around. So I think they've got to be out there in the communities. They've got to be um, delivering on on these commitments. It's a great summary. You're right. I mean, it's certainly one thing I have learned over the course of the last six months is the state of New South Wales is in a pretty average state and it's been uh, left to be so by, I guess, a lot of negligence by um, uh, a Liberal Conservative government. So big task for not just Chris but his whole team. Um, And obviously we wish them the best of luck. 
um, in the coming uh, years. Um, can I uh, also say to both you, Rosie, and to Michael Buckler, Michael um, can't join us for today's episode because uh, he's gone to land himself a job in government and we wish him the best of luck there. Um, that's the problem about um, there's so many talented people out there in the labour movement that I want to have on this show, but I can never get them on because they go and work in government because we keep on winning elections. Um, good for government, bad for me. Um, but can I say to you, Rosie, and to Michael, thank you so much for uh, contributing to these four episodes um, on behalf of um, Socially Democratic and also our listeners. We love these shows uh, and we really, really appreciate both your time and your energy and your insight that you've contributed to these four weeks and also so glad that we got a great result on uh, and Saturday night. And it was great to meet you in person on the Saturday night as well. Dan, I know, uh, great Brian, to meet you well. too. <laughs> Yeah, um, and it's so nice to be celebrating a victory and to have been on this journey with a a happy ending to it. Indeed. And one of our uh, listeners who tweeted uh, when we announced that we were going to do these episodes, they said, oh, Stephen, you know, you're you're two from two so far. Hopefully we can be three from three from when you've done these episodes on the podcast. Well, it turns out, yes, we are. Maybe we are the lucky charm. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I don't know if that's actually the case, but um, we're very happy to do these episodes. We hope to be doing that. Why not? Why not? Um, we hope everyone, yeah, absolutely. We hope everyone else out there in um, in podcast land have enjoyed these episodes as much as uh, we have. Uh, Rosie, thanks very much for coming on the show. Um, we'd love to get you back on again and talk about some of the work you're doing, certainly with the CPSU, that wonderful union. Um, but until then, uh, keep uh, keep doing the great work, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on. Social Democratic was brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events that will energise the community online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. To find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign.